You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Soupcast, coming to you from Archaeosoup Towers. By popular demand, we're taking selected videos from the Archaeosoup back catalogue and bringing them to you as convenient podcasts. As the name implies, with Archaeosoup you get a bit of everything thrown into the pot. Archaeology, discussion, humour and debate. You can find out more at archaeosoup.com. So sit back, relax and enjoy our hearty helping of Archaeosoup. Next we come to, uh, and honest to goodness, lovely straight up archaeological news story. This is uh, on the website Real Clear Science. And I love it. It's a really great little bit of research at Tikal in the Yucatan Peninsula, um, a Mayan uh, city, one of the one of the more famous Mayan sites. And uh, it's some work that's been done um, that shows, as the headline states here, uh, uh, an impressive water purification city, uh, system uh, that uh, the the Mayan city took advantage of has been rediscovered. Uh, more than 2,000 years ago, the ancient city of Tikal in northern Guatemala um, apparently utilised a mineral called zeolite to purify their drinking water. The discovery, published in the journal Scientific Reports by anthropologists from the University of Cincinnati, represents the oldest known example of water purification in the Western Hemisphere. Enduring for more than a millennium, Tikal was an impressive metropolis uh, for much of its history extending from roughly 400 BC to 900 AD, and it had thousands of structures uh, and was home to tens of thousands of inhabitants. And the key to maintaining such a population, of course, is access to clean drinking water. And uh, the diagram that, that they show here is is a quite a, quite a careful filt filtration system um, using zeolite, uh, zeolite uh, as a mineral and crystalline quartz sand in a way that wouldn't really be replicated until the 20th century. You know, this was very advanced um, thinking and a use of, of geological uh, filtration processes to, to, to pr provide clean water for the people of Tikal. I, I, I love it. I, just, I love that this sort of stuff is happening. And also I love it as an expression of uh, what we might consider to be a relatively complex and you know high technology in a world that we shouldn't forget still didn't have the wheel this this is very much a this is another way of doing human you know of humaning uh, and be and being a civilization and i've always admired mesoamerican society pre you know obviously pre-columbian society for that um for example being able to construct uh, as they did without what we for example in the western in in Western Europe were considered to be a completely necessary element, and that is, for example, carts with wheels on them. It's, it's amazing. And, and you know what? I, I, again, I, I'm not your. I, I love this story because you know any, any new discovery uh, is mm. to be applauded. Uh, I'll just click through actually from the the article you've been quoting from to the actual um, report, um, which is on Nature.com articles um, on. Shout out, round of applause, open access. Oh, hey! Yeah. Open access, very good. And um, it's, uh, it, it makes the point, it also puts it in an archaeological context. It, it makes the claim that you know, it's the first known example of, uh, of, of the use of this particular mineral in, in water purification and so on. Um, but it also makes the point um, that... Uh, people haven't really been looking um that very few large mayan sites have been comprehensively excavated so we don't know if this was a general mayan technology or whether it was uh, a technology in general use or whether it was something that had been developed specifically at Tikal. yeah suspicion yeah. must be that actually given those other large settlements that perhaps it was more general than has been recognized and which mm. is the value of something like this it points up a whole new line of potential research mm. and particularly when um, the maya have been held up by some as an example of what happens when a system, a cultural system collapses in a time of climate change. Mm. Mm. Um, and so, you know, um, it's, um, it, as the article says, today excavations have been conducted in only a few dozen of the many thousands of ancient Maya reservoirs. And many of those excavations have been limited to a single test pit. Yeah, yeah. So, you and, know, well, it, presumably, it's a, go back. 
So, so well, presumably, yeah. because the, the presumption is this is just a reservoir for this is just where water sits, and that there's, there's nothing no active happening. There's no technical mechanism for dealing with that water. They just make a hole in the ground that the water sits in, as you say. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah um, it, it's quite remarkable. There's another uh, another um, uh, South American. Uh, in this instance, South American uh, news article mm. that you quite liked, um, uh, it, well, in that part of the world, uh, and that is the giant cat drawing discovered on hillside in Peru. Um, that, now, come now, on, come on, that is the best article. Uh, the best archaeological story last month. <laughs> Finding the drawing of a giant cat at Nazca. It, you know, it, it, it was an invitation to the cat aliens to come and land. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm waiting for the new episode of Ancient Aliens that deals with the, the, the cat-headed culture. The cat headed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alpha Centauri, who you know, who, who, who arrived to, to to claim Peruvian uh, wool, presumably, and yarn, in order to, to go back to their home planet and bat it about, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, but, but in, in fact, obviously, the the uh, the it's only just been discovered because up until now, the cat, of course, have been asleep. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, it'd been resting. Other coverage of this suggested that the cat motif appears on local pottery at the same period. That's interesting. So, right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, 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 I've got a fridge magnet. We used to have a cat, much missed, and um, we've got a fridge magnet that says, um, the Egyptians worshipped cats of, as gods. Cats have never forgotten this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, that... Yeah, but, uh, but that, there's that element too. Um, but well, we're going to uh, come on to we've got one more other segment of this. I mean, because having mentioned cats, we've got to mention dogs. Of course, because there yes. are going to be there are, uh, for all the cat people out there. There are going to be the much more sensible dog people. He said, waiting for the barrage of comments below the line now. Um, putting on my tin hat. No, in all seriousness, uh, there's been a, because there's also been a really interesting piece of research um, looking at the origins of European dogs that's been published in the last mm -hmm. month as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I think um, we, 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 we need to mention that in the, in the same breath, given the, um, the place that dogs have in our culture too. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, uh, it's interesting because this story, it, it, every now and then it comes back, this question of how and when it is that... that, that people started working with dogs uh, and living with them and, and how essentially how these these wolf-like creatures became the animals that we know and love today and um, I remember a few years ago now maybe 2015 there was a story that highlighted that there had been a uh, an early domestication event I think it was around 60,000 years ago somewhere in Russia where clearly or what is now Russia where clearly humans and 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 dogs were starting to work together but then it went it went out the window really when it got cold yeah. and so in that sense it's an interesting observation that the relationship between humans and, and canines is one of convenience uh, and as much as uh, as much as for example uh, mrs soup and i wouldn't think you know to get rid of indy just because you know maybe we, we were struggling to to meet the bills or whatever we you know we'd, we'd drop other things from our lives first uh it, 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 it on a species level clearly when it becomes too much of a hassle to look after or to feed more to the point um the, the animal in the camp uh then you make a decision to look after your, your own family instead of looking after the dog. So it looks like sometimes these relationships come and go, and there were probably various um, events that, that would have would have led to this sort of partnership. But in, the, in this instance, um, uh, the article says that dogs were the first domesticated animal, likely originating from human-associated wolves, but their origin remains unclear. Bergstrom et al. Uh, sequenced 27 ancient dog genomes from multiple locations yeah. near to and corresponding in time to comparable human ancient DNA sites. Um, yeah, and they're talking about um, 11,000 BCE. Or thereabouts, yeah, yeah. So this, 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 is, this is the event that's led to why we have a dog, for example, in the house today, and why you have a dog in your house today as well. Um, by analysing... was asleep on the sofa last time, I looked, anyway. Well, indeed, yeah. Um, sometimes low-key can be can be low-key, in, in fact. By analysing these genomes, along with other ancient and modern dog genomes, the authors found that dogs likely arose once uh, from once from a now-extinct wolf population. 
and this is very interesting in so much as a little bit actually it's not dissimilar to some of the um things we see for example in humans in without of africa relatively small populations can lead to big changes um they also found that uh, at least five different dog populations 10,000 years before present show replacements in Europe at later dates. Furthermore, some dog population genetics are similar to those of humans, whereas others differ, inferring a complex ancestral history for humanity's best friend. And suppose that, that translates into people have at times lived with and at times had a much a slightly standoffish relationship with dogs as they've been evolving over the past 11,000 years. They haven't always moved with people, but often they have moved with people. And in particular, what's interesting, I think, here is this idea that that, that the, the, the event that sparks that particular relationship between between canine and, and human is seemingly relatively rare because this is this has come out of a relatively small population of, a, of extinct wolves meaning that, that you have to have that right balance of a, a wolf which is uh, confident enough to approach people um, mm -hmm. but also that is timid enough to be to be approached by people as well uh, yeah. a, a creature which which will un, which probably is quite clever and also uh, develops mm -hmm. an ability to understand for example the gesture of pointing that's something which, which dogs universally have is they they recognize a point whereas a cat yeah. doesn't recognize when someone's pointing at something um that's if it's awake in the first place <laughs> exactly um, but also as well language as well uh dogs yeah. dogs have definitely developed a very good uh, understanding of human words and and they they learn they reckon tone if not words well, well, it's interesting. They reckon that that well, tone obviously is crucial, but also uh, dogs have been shown to have a, a vocabulary of dozens of of actual words as well. So, so that this relationship is a complex one, and it's interesting that, that this research is getting as closer to understanding that story. Um, do you I think? think well, I like it. As, as, as with the previous story about the um, the the the, um, the glyphs and the, and and the minds. What's great about these papers is they're proper scientific papers, bounded on on mm. proper you know, uh, original research or new look at old, old, old issues, yeah. um, but then point the way forward, saying, "Look, we need to know more." So, for example, this paper says, "Actually, we need to look at older mm. examples of dog DNA." Yeah. So, uh, saying, you know, giving archaeologists a heads up, mm. look at, to people working on sites older, older than eleven thousand BCE. If you come across mm. dog, um, then get it DNA tested. Well, and um, published. But actually, that because I guess an interesting question that that this that, that that this posits is the mechanism by which dog populations are replaced. Is this people moving in with their own dogs and that those dogs, you know, eradicate the local dog wolf type population? Do people or do it on that, behalf or of those dogs? To the extent they dilute the yeah. the genome and the rest yeah, of yeah. it, you know. Absolutely. All those other mechanisms, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so there are more questions to be answered as to how exactly and why it is that, that uh, Loki and Indy are in our lives. That's what, I think in the end, and that's why I was attracted to this paper, I think, in the end. Mm -hmm. It's an ex all, deep cutting right through all the, all the academic language and so on. It's compelling, and which is fine. It's an academic paper. That's absolutely fine. It's compelling because it's about something that is, particularly in Western culture, mm -hmm. um, why dogs are so much a part of our lives and in our homes. Yeah. To this day, you know, we don't need them to help us go hunting anymore. No. Um, you know, your average domestic dog, you know, it doesn't. It, the closest it gets to hunting is, you know, chasing a squirrel in the park. Mm -hmm. failing to catch it but you know he, uh, but we, we can see there's a jack russell he's he's um evolved with the kind of for example fur coloring uh, with patches of black and white and brown and, and so on but it, it's a breakup camouflage for a mm -hmm. dog running around under in the you know in the in in, in 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 the in the barn or under the under under a farm building ratting that's what you need to break up your outline if you're if you're hunting rats and mice yeah you know so that that's still in that, that, those mechanisms the vestigial elements of those mechanisms are still there in play in the in the in the you know lineages of modern dogs it's fascinating it is i mean in our instance indy is, a, is an interesting one whereby he um he's absolutely uh it's weird. He's absolutely an indoors dog. He hates it when it's cold outside. I'm just going, well, I'm going to stay inside. 
but also as well, he loves going outside. As often is the case with terriers, they often are described as having another personality. When you go outside, they're just different. Oh yeah. Partly because they're so stimulated by the smells, I think. Um, and uh, and in our case, yeah, Indy absolutely, I think, comes from from a working dog background because he has the instinct to go down holes and and he wants to follow that smell and find the thing. The problem yeah. is, is that he he's absolutely a pet as well. He's, he he is not. He has no idea what to do with those instincts. So he'll he'll go. Oh, there's a smell, and sort of want to follow it. And but he's he's also really yeah. bad at triangulation. So we'll be walking along with him, and he'll see a cat. Like there's a cat, and he'll note the cat is there. The cat will look at him. We'll keep on walking, and then Indy will continue to look to the right, not back, but to the right to find the cat again. He has no idea that the cat is is back there now. He's so he's got he's got the instincts, but he's just not. He's sort of he's he must it must be a very a very interesting life uh, to to lead. Oh, we we got the same. We we have a um. A local, one of the local strays that um, our former neighbours nicknamed um, or called Magic, and she, um, she, she's a, a, yeah, a female, young female cat, uh, a black and white again, cat, uh, and you get these wonderful standoffs in the garden where she, sh we've got a terrace at the end of our garden where, where we sit and so on. The cat sits there as well, and it looks down the garden, and Loki sits looking up at the garden, and there is this sort of standoff. Where the cat's sort of going, yeah, you, you know, I'm here, or whatever. And Loki's trying to go, what do I do? Do I shout? Do I run up and shout at it? <laughs> you know, it's sort of, um, and, and you see that you see these basic animal relationships in, in, in play, and these instincts in play. Like you say, it's fascinating, and you you, you apply that to this lineage as well, and mm. you can start to you look at animal behaviour in the wild and how it adapts to mm. a domestic environment and mm. um, you know talk about the campfire we lit our first fire of the winter last weekend and Lokes is straight down there lying in front of it um with his belly facing it so his belly's being warmed yeah. until he gets too hot and then he walks away and kind of cools down has a drink of water then comes back and lays down in front of the fire again you, you can see this it's all it, it is primeval yeah, there it is there. Uh, also, is it worthwhile to briefly mention, it just occurred to me, this month there was also a story or a piece of research um, mm. that was examining the uh, the uh, um, the origins of pet graveyards as well. That's an interesting one. Yes, um, I think it was, was it was it the headline something like uh, "Do all good dogs go to heaven?" I think it was the was the yeah. was, yeah. was the was the headline. But then the and and that that's an interesting thing because actually, the, the, for example, there's a pet graveyard close to us that was in use for a very particular period of time uh, in uh, in Newcastle. Um, and you can tell it was used well from the dates on the headstones. In fact, for, you know, sort of early 1900s it started really, you know, and then and then petered mm. out by 1950 something. I think probably because yeah. it it was more formally a park by that point, and you know, burying your, your pet wasn't wasn't very welcome. But this uh, it's interesting how, um, uh, and I think we've discussed it in previous uh, videos. I certainly it certainly came up in an interview I did. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, where the, this, there has been a shift, a noticeable shift in human behaviour in recent years, I say comparatively recent years, over the past hundred years or so, away from this notion of a of having a noble man's best friend as in a useful tool uh, mm. relationship, to being one whereby now the dog is actually a member of the family and the dog mm. deserves, for example, a burial and, and a headstone and so on and so forth. So, yeah, all of this is is, is absolutely uh, worthwhile mentioning, especially in the context mm. of talking about cats. Woof. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> now we come to our Muppet of the Month. And there were a couple of, of, of stories that were vying for our attention in this instance. But this month's Muppet is, is highly topical and highly specific to precisely now. Uh, in so much as it is the story of um, uh, the owner of a soft play centre uh, in Liverpool. Uh, trying to to invoke Magna Carta uh, as uh, a reason that his his uh, soft play uh, center was open despite COVID restrictions. In other words, it was a, it was it, it's been deemed that such places are not great in if you're trying to stop people from, from catching uh, bugs and yep. viruses and diseases, and it was meant to be closed. But Magna Carta, the 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 the, the bedrock of Western freedom uh, was invoked by the ship. Not. <laughs> <laughs> 
And also, well, it should be said, their very specific version of the document was being invoked as well. Yes. But, but, the 1215 but, version, as opposed to the 1216 version, or the version that actually became statute in 1297. <laughs> <laughs> Subparagraph, section... And now, now, the thing is, it's, it's interesting, because you say, you say it's not, but it's, it's, it's worthwhile saying that actually... You know, to be fair, Magna Carta is part of the story of establishing, for example, access to courts, uh, you know, um, habeas corpus and so on and so forth. The, the, the yeah, in so bedrock the, of Western so the, freedoms. So, yeah, society. so the King John's parents can be had up in court and chucked into prison by the king for staging a rebellion. That's what it's about. <laughs> Going to say, I don't, yeah, what this is, a, this is about the uh, attempts to evade the COVID nineteen regulations. Yes, yes. and the uh, a, a certain even even if you don't believe Magna Carta is important. Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't, yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was suggested, and it was suggested amongst others by a Twitter feed called British Lives UK Union Jack Stand United. Yeah. Um, Were there any bulldogs own, in the in the in the Twitter handle? Uh, no, but it has a seasonal image of poppies which obviously okay. shows great patriotism and yes. care for the regard for the past which we must respect yeah. uh, what we don't respect is what was underneath this particular uh thing which, which says if you own a business and display article 61 of magna carta in your windows you can't be fined or forced to close your business vital this is retweeted save your small local businesses um the problem with this is that Article 61 of Magna Carta doesn't even exist. No. It's not. It's not. It, it's not labelled in that way. Um, but uh, and, and 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 to um, quote a, 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 another person on Twitter, Gavin John Adams, a, a lawyer. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Here's some free legal advice. This is nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Clause, not Article 61 of Magna Carta, is not only irrelevant. It's no longer in force. You're, You're welcome. welcome. about this it, you know it's, it, it's serious and yeah people are concerned about businesses the, you know, the loss of businesses the loss of jobs the loss of their livelihoods we talked about the shambles in higher education and schools earlier on in the, in, in the show so this is a serious issue but yeah. to try and come at it in this way it's that sort of desperate but barrack room lawyer approach that really doesn't do any it, they just end up as muppets of the month and um, but I think the serious point underlying this is also that it 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 plays to that certain strand of English exceptionalism mm. that says that the English political system of Parliament um, it, is can trace its lineage directly back to Magna Carta, and therefore the the, the rights of all true-born Englishmen are embodied in, 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 in that and, and, and government, uh, overbearing government shall not... You know. it, it's almost taking to the unwritten English and British constitutions mm. um, the, 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 the force and literality of the American constitution, which uh, we've seen again being debated so powerfully recently in the American elections with the appointment um appointments to the supreme court who are originalists who believe in the constitution of the united states interpreted as it would have been interpreted by the founding fathers yeah. before for example slavery was abolished and women had rights even to vote yeah. and before so, there was such thing as a telephone for example well quite yeah, yeah. so yeah it, it, it's it, if you like it's a romantic and false view of history that's now being put in public circulation for, for partly for genuine reasons partly out of ignorance actually it's still pretty funny it I mean, is quite I, funny should, should 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 we file this with an englishman's home is his castle uh kind of which again is not it's a concept from yeah, the idea is, is that's a concept that comes out of um, Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights is the idea that, um, you know, uh, you know uh, and, and things like habeas corpus, you know, bring out the body, yeah. show us the body, mm -hmm. um, that the, the, the authorities can't make somebody disappear, that they can't just enter your home without a warrant. And just, yeah, you know, evaporate it, it, you, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So you know that that that, that in a sense is, is, is serious, and you know it's important. It's and don't get me wrong. It is it is really important that we maintain our rights in the face of what governments want to do. Yes. 
um, our wider human right is the freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and where it's sensible whereas at the moment perhaps it isn't quite so sensible when there's a rampant pandemic virus in the, around. You know, and, and, and uh, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting that, that in that sense, uh, uh, one of the presenters of Horrible Histories uh, was able to clarify this as well for anyone who needs in, to see in this. Song. Yeah, in not song. Through, not, not through the medium of interpretive dance, but and, through song. An Emmy award-winning song, no less. So he tweeted the video to, uh, they did a song about uh, Magna Carta a couple Which of years. Which we will link to, I think, because I think it's available online. Yeah, I think well, it is. Yes, we can put yeah. the link below. Yeah, yep. um, and even he was saying, you know, uh, for anyone who needs to see this, no, Magna Carta doesn't empower businesses to resist lockdown closures, and 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 I suppose what what's interesting, uh, just 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 to sort of slightly extend that thread about this idea of 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 there being, uh, everything is I suppose an English ex exceptionalism, which is sort of brought born out of a pride, which I ironically in this conversation have for Mag I think Magna Carta we should count it as being an important document um the irony is though Magna Carta is laying down a framework and a structure which then was built upon and old augmented and changed over the, the, in, the intervening centuries um which is now part of the structure which allows enables parliament for example to enact a 30-day lockdown that yes. means you have to comply by it. It's rights and responsibilities. If you want to be a member of our society, these are the laws you have to comply by. Uh, and uh, the and other... in fact, it's, it's, it's doubly interesting at the moment because although these people, uh, who are broadly speaking, we can brand as uh, 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 many of them as, as COVID deniers. Well, someone here, others... on one of the Twitter threads here, they just described as nut jobs. So, you know, you, you, that's <laughs> I, very polite of you. I'd, I'd be slightly more polite, yeah. Um, <laughs> About most of them. I think Piers Corbyn, I'm not quite so sure. Um, but um, in all seriousness, that uh, I think it's interesting that even in the current situation, Boris Johnson's government has been forced to concede to unrest in Parliament, and particularly on his own backbenches, but in Parliament in general, mm. that these regulations must face a, uh, a vote in Parliament to be either imposed or renewed. Mm. We had the vote to impose the new lockdown on on Wednesday afternoon yes yeah. um you know and, and if that vote had gone against the government then it would have been a absolute cluster proverbial hmm. even well, more so than it actually is but, but but that shows you know parliament can still exert itself hmm. um and that kind of idea is embodied in things the heritage of Magna Carta, the, you know, the, the first calling of Parliament uh, you know, uh, in, in Westminster, and, 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 and so on. But also going, you know, going back to the, you know, the, 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 the um, Saxon Vitan um, that uh, you know decided to uh, appoint, you know, Errol Godwinson as successor to Robert the Confessor. And we know where that led to. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And all, you know, the, the, these, these traditions are part of our heritage. They are important. They do, and they do ripple down the centuries to now. Hmm. Um, well, that, but uh, not, well, not, not being... least, not least, not least in the uh, the the designation that there should be a uniform measure of alcohol across the land. The humble yeah. pint wouldn't exist were it not for Magna Carta. Absolutely, and and the humble pint survived forty years in the EU. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and and and, but I think the other thing, you know, it it's a very simplistic view though, of the history. of evolution of the law and the constitution because uh, I, mean, I, I very tongue-in-cheek tweeted about it, uh, and, and, and suggested that maybe you know, if, if, if Magna Carta didn't work then they could maybe go back to the um, the law of Ethelbert um, and then there's also the code of Justinian and the code of Hammurabi even which you know all of which feed into the evolution of western jurisprudence yeah yeah so this is true yeah. um, you know and then of course there's the he who smelt it dealt it um finders keepers absolutely yes yeah yes, absolutely yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, i'll argue that next time i'm up in the beach in front of the beach hopefully yeah. never uh, <laughs> and i'm not saying i'll be up in front of the beach before either because i haven't <laughs> so, just to be clear just to be clear, just to be yeah. clear. this is satire folks um, <laughs> but yes truly a muppet of the month and a muppet of this particular month a month where we are uh seeing a lockdown enforced. Go ahead, sorry. Exactly. In fact, guilty of being a Muppet of the Month. Perhaps. Oh, oh my lord. My lord. Very good. I rest my case. <laughs>
Next, we come on to our final segment of the month, and that is the media picks. Uh, and this month, I uh, actually belatedly looked into a particular media pick because of a conversation that was started uh, in October. Um, so we're going to link below to a, a couple of articles, uh, uh, one of which, um, there's a couple of links, uh, the, uh, the article of which comes from the New York Times and talks about reclaiming on Netflix an ancient battle beloved of Germany's far right. This is, of course, the Teutoburg Forest Massacre that took place in 9 AD. Um, I think on my birthday in 9 AD, I think on the 11th of September. Uh, and there's, there's the wonderful image in, uh, in Suetonius of the Emperor Augustus uh, stalking the, the corridors of his palace in Rome at night. Screaming at the gods, Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Three, three Roman legions were destroyed by uh, German tribes under Arminius, uh, which was Germanicized to Hermann, mm. uh, and gave the name to people like Hermann Goring. Um, but he, 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 who had actually been a, 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 an officer in the Roman auxiliaries. Yes. Um, yeah. So he, you know, it was. Uh, it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating. It's a fascinating story, and 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 its place in history is very important in so much as it it made the Roman project reassess the 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 impetus for expansion. It it, it re had to rethink where it was going, what it was doing next in terms of the northern North frontier, and, and, and arguably created the the Rhine frontier, military frontier, which was so heavily garrisoned that one argument for the invasion of Britain in AD forty three is that it was to secure a corn supply mm. uh, across the North Sea and down the Rhine for the for the Rhine armies. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, yeah, it had very far-reaching consequences at mm. the time and, and subsequently. And so it, it is it, it absolutely crucial. And the, the article here, though, is highlighting the fact that that, uh, that this is it's a German language production. Um, mm -hmm. it, it does have a, an English dub, a fairly bad English dub, to be honest, uh, on I Netflix. Just, well, well, they let us watch subtitles. Well, there, well there, 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 are, there are subtitles as well. It's just the default is to yeah. play it in English, and it's, uh, it's got I know, I know. some quite dodgy subtitles. And choose the English if you want, because the dubs always are rubbish. They are, they, well, not always, <laughs> not always. But in this instance, they are almost they're not, they're not okay, great. Uh, almost. almost always um and um, what's interesting about it though is is how uh it, the reason why i'm highlighting this is it, it it brought to it brought to the fore three key strands and i'll just briefly go through them the first one is how yes as the article here says the far right is going oh yes a story about germans being german germanic and heroic and and phase you know staving off the the might of rome and so on and so forth um and as someone actually on the facebook page the archaeosu facebook page they, they they pointed this out um is this is this isn't really a news story you know ger right-wing germans like german germanic things like it so in that sense it's not surprising um, i've never heard of the arna nerva yeah <laughs> exactly Exactly. There's, who are the, who are those who are those villains in the indie movies? You know, the, the, in the first oh, one in particular. Oh, uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, those guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's a, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's that element of it, um, which though is not, as far as I can tell, remotely the focus of the TV series. That's not no, that's not the, what not. their agenda is. No way to make that clear. Yeah. The second thing which is interesting to me, though, in this uh, is in this conversation is the way in which people um, react to it by saying, for example, it's just a TV series. It's not a documentary. Calm down, this kind of thing. And 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 trying to effectively negate any examination or conversation surrounding the, pr the presentation of the past in a TV series. Now, this is something which you, you and I often go back and forth on, for example, when it comes to things like uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Um, uh, and in this instance, I think, I think, for my point, I would say it's quite not, it's quite okay, especially on an archaeological forum, for archaeologists to be going, is this any good from an archaeological perspective? I think that's all right, isn't it, surely? Yeah, look, uh, one of my proudest days uh, as a budding archaeologist in the late 1970s and early 1980s was when I went to a cinema release of Ben-Hur. And the, in, in the, um, one of the scenes early in the film in the House of Hur in Jerusalem, there's a very nice alabaster jar on a table, which has been copied from one of the alabaster jars from the tomb of Tuzankamun. Mm -hmm. And I spotted oh. that. Oh, I know where they got that from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Ben Hur was an antique collector. Yeah. Uh, yep. Antiquarian. And, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, and, and also I think we have to be clear that there is a tradition of epic historical movies and TV series that are done for political reasons. Mm-hmm. For example, there's a subgenre at the moment of, of, uh, that is available. That they're available on Netflix of you know, epic action adventures set, for example, at the foundation of the Ottoman Empire, mm. which is about Turkish nationalism, mm. and particularly under the current president Erdogan. Yeah. Um, Indian movies of various languages play to those tropes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and but and as we were discussing the- in an earlier segment. For example, the Chinese state not wanting to present Genghis Khan in in a, in a favourable light, or even mention him. Absolutely, yeah. a, 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 absolutely. And there have been political controversies, for example, about movies like wonderful movies like House of Flying Daggers and things mm. like that, mm. um, yeah. where. Um, uh, but and going back a bit further, um, under Mussolini, uh, the Italian film industry was churning out epics about the Roman. Mm. Uh, the Roman Empire um, and uh, even as the Third Reich was collapsing um, Goebbels was transferring not just millions of Reichmarks but thousands of German soldiers uh, to be extras in a film about the fight of the Prussians against Napoleon in 1812 mm, yeah Mm. Um, so, uh, so the the theatre, the theatre of nationalism, is absolutely part of out, this. Yeah, absolutely. The theatre and the cinema of nationalism absolutely plays out in these things. So we have we have to we have to hold up a measure to these to these productions and say what is it actually saying for now. Mm. And well, um, and that that actually brings me to to my third strand. In so much as I couldn't help but observe. Um, given that the second strand we've established it's okay to observe this sort of stuff. In the third strand, I couldn't help but observe a weird... Uh, I've only watched the first episode and a bit more uh, beyond that, so a little bit into the second episode. Um, and uh, it, it, it's a slightly strange thing, whereby possibly because of the dub it feels a bit like a cartoon, uh, but that might just be the dub. But certainly there's this presentation of of Rome that was on the one hand actually okay in terms of sorry I mean the 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 impact of Rome so we're seeing a local garrison and its effect on a on a village um, uh, in what is now Germany um, it was broadly speaking okay some of the details of the armor you could go ugh you know that's not quite right that's not quite right but yeah you know, I'm I'm happy to put that to one side what I found more more interesting and and uh, a bit more as it were boldly um, curious was the 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 way that Rome is presented as so at the opening sprawl of the TV series and presumably each episode says something along the lines of oh, well certainly at the beginning of the first one um, you know the Roman army was the greatest army ever ever created in the world you know this kind of thing yeah. so on the one hand there there again we're back to this notion of the military machine which we discussed on previous watching reefs yeah. and, and why that's a flawed focus when it comes to Rome. But then also our noble savages, our our barbarians. The TV series is, is of course called Barbarians. I didn't uh, mention that, but it is. Um, our barbarians are able to infiltrate a camp and steal an eagle. Uh, not particularly original plot point, but it's you know it's, it, they're doing it by appealing to the soldiers' uh, weaknesses their weakness being uh, pleasures of the flesh. So they tempt, you know, uh, at one point, one of the one of the barbarian heroes is going, you want an orgy? You want an orgy? <laughs> Which is the straight, I, I almost wanted just to capture that I've as got a, a meme. Not, not that I've ever watched any, but the stories you hear about sort of 70s German, German porn movies. <laughs> Indeed, we're here to fix your... Are they yeah. sort of cute blonde with, with tight, little, tight, tight little blonde... blonde Zapata moustaches. Actually, yes. <laughs> Actually, in this instance, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point is, is that you have this um, brutish but buffoon idea of Rome. You know, mighty but also deeply flawed. Um, in a way that that then the barbarians are not portrayed as. The barbarians are portrayed as living an authentic lifestyle, wanting to be, you know, one with the gods, and you know, yes, having some tribal 
back and forth. Yeah. But ultimately, um, for example, when it comes to the, the the romantic scene that's in the first episode, it's a, it's a meeting of equals, you know, the strong woman and the you know, and so on and so forth. There's also the portrayal uh, of some details, which actually um, someone did say on the on the Facebook page, that is coming directly out of nineteenth. 19th and early 20th century ideas about Germany and German archaeology. So things like um, there's a portrayal of a scene where a bride price is being discussed and this woman is being sort of examined, her teeth and her hips and so on and so forth, um, which, which for which uh, evidence shifts around. Again, there's, there were problems with looking at Iron Age Europe um, in, in, in any part of the world. So, for example, people often look at the Torn and think that that maps back on to Iron Age Ireland, for example. Um, so some of these details they're extrapolating from arguably out, outdated sources. But I think what I find and, interesting... And even, and even talking about Germany, even, even when you've got an apparently contemporary source like Tacitus's Germania, yeah. that, that's, that is highly... You have to biased. Use that highly circumspectly. Yeah. Well, and in that sense, we don't, we don't know what to what extent... You know, Tacitus, for example, observing Britain, had any inf actually understanding of what he was looking at. You know, because he was filtering it probably through his father-in-law. Yeah, yeah. And his experience in the Roman military under precisely. The yeah. And, uh, well, and also, yeah. I mean, even right down to the names. You know, the idea that mm. you know Toggy Dubnus is actually the real name of of, of a king, as opposed yeah. to a Romanized version of what they're hearing. Anyway, so, so there, are, there are issues of, of, how, of how the sources are, are examined. But I think coming back to this question that you, that you asked, this notion of what does it, what's it, what is it saying now for today? Why is this, what is the current, you know, the currency of this thing that's been made? I would say it, you can see why it is that this question of is this a German nationalistic perspective on Rome uh, mm. and the influence of Rome um, why that question is being asked because it, it is definitely portraying Rome as, as f fatally flawed. I know. think I think it's really interesting, you know, because if you look at uh, oh, but by the way, when I said under Agricola, I meant of course his father-in-law Agricola. Um, but anyway, uh, that's Tastus. Um No, if you look at okay, just look at English language versions of the Roman army, yeah. and I'll, I'll, I'll give you two two examples. One is the movie Spartacus, mm -hmm. which was made by Stanley Kubrick, produced by Kirk Douglas, who also played the hero Spartacus. Everybody mm -hmm. probably has, uh, has seen it, or at least everybody knows the I Am Spartacus meme that has become just such a ubiquitous thing. If you look at uh, film historians looking at it, I made the point that um, it's unusual in Hollywood epics at that time uh, because there's no mention of Christianity in films like Quo Vadis and Ben Hur and so on. It's mm -hmm. about the, the tribe of Christianity over pagan Rome and and and, and, and so on. Um, Spartacus isn't that. Spartacus is a po very political film. Mm. It's about slavery and freedom. Yeah. But it's also seen as a Zionist movie. It's about this small group of people trying to find the promised land. They don't get there in the end. No. Although it's you're left with a moment of hope when the Roman. Uh, Slave dealer, played by Peter Ustinov, actually helped Zionists um, uh, um, uh, help Spartacus's now wife and young baby escape, even as they're walking under the crucified slaves on the Appian Way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you but it, it's not a triumph of Christianity movie like Ben Hur. Yeah. Um, and but there again the rope. It's interesting, but the, the Romans, as a very Hollywood thing, the, the senior Romans are played by British actors, Charles Lawton, Peter Ustinov, and above all, Laurence Olivier as Crassus. Yeah. Um, and they're played as professional soldiers. There's a brilliant scene when, um, uh, just before the final battle, when Crassus is briefing the Roman senior officers. And it's just professionals doing their job. Mm. And, and Crassus said, you know, we're going to get this job done, guys, and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. It's absolutely, you know, okay, he's, it's his political body. You know, but it, so, so there's that. And, and I contrast that with a um, miniseries that was made um, in the 1980s called Masada, um, which was ostensibly, again, about the uh, siege of Masada in uh, 70, uh, well, they followed the siege of Jerusalem in 71. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's meant to be the last stand of the... Jewish rebels in, in the Roman province of Palestine. Yeah. Um, foundation myth of 
modern Israel. Mm-hmm. Members of the IDF still take their oath of allegiance on top of Masada. Right. Masada shall not fall again. Mm. Um, but there is a very interesting because, again, the Romans are played, led by Pietro O'Toole as, uh, uh, as the Roman commander, are played as professionals doing a job. Mm. Their job is to finish off this rebellion, take the capital, take, take, take the, the fortress, and and, and, whatnot. and actually, the portrayal of the zealots is quite ambivalent. Mm. They're seen as you know, a bunch of fanatics, and are they actually gaining anything by doing this? No. By by forcing the, you know this 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 bloodletting and ultimately by this mass suicide. Mm-hmm. Now you could argue that in modern culture, certainly in the state of Israel, they have, but it it, it forces you to ask the questions. Yeah. Um, and it's about and it was also about colonial. Actually, I met one other final the eagle based on Rosemary Sutcliffe's Eagle of the Ninth, mm-hmm. where the, the the opening allusion to that is a boat going down a river. In the same way that the fast boats went upriver in Vietnam, yeah. Rome is the colonial power. Rome is fighting this grubby colonial war in the, you know, in in in, in the in the wilds of Exeter. Yeah, and the, Exeter. The, 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 and the Kelty Kong are hiding in the forest and this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so in that sense, uh, it's in, and actually, this actually ties in with it with a, a part of a conversation I was having with Adrian Maldonado a few days ago. Um, about about depictions of, in particular, Rome and, and Picts in that instance. Um, in, in so much as often Rome and the, the portrayal of Rome is, is it's unavoidably a commentary on how people at the time view themselves and their place in society and the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In this instance, then, um, perhaps I need to watch more to understand why why the Romans are being portrayed the way they are. I'm certainly wanted to watch it because I think it's, it sounds fascinating. I, I mean, when, when he flagged it up, I thought, "Oh, that's interesting." It's a story I've always been interested in. Mm-hmm. And, in fa- and in fact, again, if people want to read around the Roman army on the Rhine, as well as the te- um, the, the, the technical, um, you know, uh, archaeological stuff, read Lindsay Davis's um, Falco thriller called *The Iron Hand of Mars*, which is set on the Rhine frontier and is brilliant. Okay. It involves an it involves an oryx. Really? Yes. Interesting. Wow. Okay, well, I'll check that out. Interesting. Yeah, Lindsay, Lindsay Davis, the Iron Hand of Mars. Iron Hand of Mars. Okay, uh, what is your media pick, Mr. Brockman? Is it uh, uh, is it something that, that, that's equally sort of dramatic, or is it a bit more serious? No, it's the opposite. It's sort of serious, uh, and it's about some very dramatic stories, but it's actually very simple, and uh, it's the repeat on BBC4 uh, next week, which will subsequently be on BBC iPlayer. Um, of uh, episodes of a series War Walks by Frontier War, 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 War Walks. War Walks. Okay, yeah. It's a, yeah, it, it is not the easiest title to say. No. <laughs> wound and wound the wagon, wagon whilst you ran. Do you know, yeah, it, actually, a, in the northeast of England, War Walks would mean our walks. Of course. Yeah, War. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, like W-O-R. Yeah, as in War Jackie and all that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, um, War Walks. Right, yeah. War Walks, um, which was a series... Uh, the first episode went out in the summer of 1996. Uh, it was fronted by the late Professor Richard Holmes, mm. who had a formidable career, both as an academic, but also uh, ending up as the most senior uh, territorial, a volunteer, uh, part-time soldier in the British Army. Nice. Um, he was a... Uh, he... he uh, taught British army officers and, and, and soldiers uh, as an academic, specialised in military history. War Walks was an incredibly well-received series at the time and has held its reputation in the 25 years since um, because, basically, he went out onto the ground, walked a battlefield, explained what happened but also why it happened what influenced the he, he, he did the basic academic thing of who what when where why mm. but he did it incredibly loosely he was one of those people who you could just put in front of a camera and they could just make something absolutely clear and compelling mm. so few academics can do it 
and you know they, they did it to a degree with Time Team, the way Time Team was cast. There are other examples. Um, you know, the, the, the classic, he, if you like, he was a military history version of David Attenborough in terms of his ability to be loved by the camera and talk to an audience through the camera. Mm-hmm. Okay. And can, I'll, can, I'll, can I'll I'll I imagine anybody... a Carl Sagan then? then. That kind of thing. Carl Sagan, yeah, no, Carl Sagan had it too. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my great heroes in broadcasting and in science. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think there is a huge amount that modern TV producers could learn from this kind of uh, presentation. It's, uh, it, it's about getting your casting right, which yeah. doesn't mean getting you know, casting uh, a, Holly, a major Hollywood actor. No. Um, yeah. They get Loki is no longer Loki. No, he's not. He's probably seen. He's probably seen magic, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but on there, so it's, it's a, instead of casting a Hollywood actor or, for example, uh, yeah. you know, your Suggs equivalent to 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 get attention this is on a series. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You, you don't need the everyman because the presenter is so, wears their knowledge so lightly they can be the everyman. Yeah. That's yeah. what's. That's where Sagan. Why Sagan was so brilliant. It's why Attenborough is so brilliant. It's why Richard Holmes was so brilliant. And and it's interesting uh, if you don't mind me just sort of uh, putting a little no. little thought in there. Uh, in so which is interesting how that was one of the first bits of advice I was ever given when it came to to essay writing, uh, serious essay writing at, at uni as opposed to what I'd experienced previously at high school, um, was that uh, you, you know you avoid jargon. You don't need to prove yeah. how smart you are through the words you use. You need to be able to describe yeah. and explain what you what you're thinking and how why you think that and how you come to that conclusion in language that anyone can understand. And it's uh, what I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's what I, it's what I'm always saying. You know, it's archaeologists need to learn how to talk human. Yeah. You don't talk about heritage assets. You talk about our past. Mm. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, and so and so on. And as I say. Even some of these niches, apparently niches, military history, uh, Holmes was able to do that. Um, the episodes next week, they go out from Monday to Friday. Um, it's the episodes about the 20th century. And there is slightly odd order mm. um, because um, the um, it opens with possibly one of the most famous battles of the 20th century on the Somme. Uh, then there's a first, it goes to a Second World War battle at, at Arras in the invasion in 1940. And then it goes back to the First World War for Mons. Um, but um, you know, I, and, and, and there are others. Um, but I do urge people to watch at least one because it, it's a, even if you're not interested in military history, it's a textbook example in how a good interpreter can tell a historical story in a compelling way um, without gimmicks, without loads of CGI, without loads of cheesy, cheap. Reenactments of people who don't look anything like Hitler, but with a toothbrush moustache, slamming the table. Yeah. History yeah. Channel. I am looking at you. Yeah. Um. You know, it's it's production. Well, also, I, I don't I don't mean to extend this 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 section for too far, but but I'm just curious. What then is your what what are your thoughts on that strange historical past tense, past present tense that people tend to use in the in those sorts of dramatizations of the past? So when they're saying, you know, um, her Hitler was very annoyed and they show someone banging a table, you know, um, uh, where they'll, they'll say was or rather they'll say is very annoyed. You know, right now, as 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 he is doing this across the courtyard, so and so is loading a luger. You know, this kind of thing. Um, do you think um, that that that's, an, that that's a similarly effective tool, or or not? In so much as what you've been describing there is someone who has a mastery of the facts and therefore is relatable and can can relate what they're saying to the audience very effectively. Yeah. Is having a present tense approach as effective in these sorts of televisual uh, right attempts? This is this is really interesting. This is when you get into um, literary style and so on. Um, and I have used the historic present. We use it in the book, uh, the Burma Spitfires book, still available from your local bookseller. Please support them during the lockdown. Very <laughs> um, Spitfires of Burma by Andy Brockman and Tracy Spate, published by the History Press. Um, no, the, the... Will, will you sign it for a fiver? <laughs> logistics of that at the moment I'd love we, God, we would love to have done a proper book launch and book tour and signing at our local bookshops and the logistics at the moment and everybody yeah. involved in 
you know, it, it's just horrific. And, you know, people, poor people trying to run, you know, keep that, that part of the economy going. They're, yeah. you know, they're working like Trojans and doing their level best. And particularly your local bookshop, please support them if you can. There's a new law. In fact, there's a, there's a new organisation called bookshop.org. Um, which has just launched in the UK. It launched a few, uh, short while ago in the United States. It's designed to enable local bookshops to compete with a certain large international provider whose name shall not be mentioned, Tick. Yeah. Um, well, actually, uh, yeah, and uh, I think I shared a, a link to them uh, this month, yeah. actually. Um, yeah. Anyway, I've distracted you there, sorry. The present tense. <laughs> so, the present, the, the historic present, I think it, it, can be, it can be useful in dramatic terms. And what it can be useful for in storytelling terms is establishing what somebody did or didn't know at a particular moment yeah so for example if you can say you know the guy with the toothbrush moustache was making this decision at this moment but he didn't know that simultaneously in washington it was being decided that mm, mm. that's useful yeah and it's a way of constructing a story yeah. and as i say as I, and i say many many times and i will never stop saying uh, archaeologists and historians have to be storytellers as well as analysts mm. and that means if it's appropriate you can play with the forms okay interesting interesting that's good enough yeah, yeah. i think and for the record I, I think i tend to agree i think uh yeah um particularly when you have stories about where you know where there is granular information where we know through communique and through official records and so on and so forth uh i mean one of the one of the stories that comes to mind is um Oh, is it Selby, the the infamous um, uh, Cold War double agent? Philby. Philby, Philby not Selby. Philby. Kim, 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 Phil, Kim, Kim Philby. Philby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Kim Philby. Where uh, very yeah, the most effective um, documentary I've ever seen on that was told as it was unfolding. And it was not every event was, was dramatised, but what you had was a sense of why it was that people at the time didn't go, you are... <laughs> you were clearly playing both sides, you know. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? We all played both sides. He was playing for one side. It's just the other side thought it was his side. Well, they were his side. Sorry, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, you're clearly ingratiating yourself to us when you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and it was interesting in that sense to see how was that Ben? Was that Ben McIntyre's documentary? About I think him? it was. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he, no, Ben was, McIntyre is a master of that kind of storytelling. He He's brilliant. done it in a number of documentaries now. Yeah, and in that sense, he lays out who knew what when and why this particular yeah. meeting has you know what the stakes yeah. are in this particular moment um mm. and and then you also get it, it also frees him up in that moment so this is now i suppose this is a meta-analysis of presentation on on tv but i think this is probably worthwhile to one or two viewers at least yeah. um what you have then <laughs> is the, to make a cup of <laughs> what you have is the space then as well or, or, or switch to see if the american election's finished yet it hasn't. I was just checking. It hasn't. Um, uh, what you have as well is, although Biden's just taken a lead in Pennsylvania, you know, if, if you're interested, it's now it's now ten to four on uh, the sixth of November, um, UK time. Anyway, so what you have though is that he creates the space there as well as clearly a modern person talking in the present about the past. Uh, the space to make comments on actually this moment here, this press conference that, that Kim Philby held is used today in spy school. It's used in MI5 and, and so on and so forth to, to say just how well people can lie uh, because it, he's so charismatic and he carries it off so effort, effortlessly that it's a, it's a tour de force of, of subterfuge, you know, um, and to have, to have that little insight. He's a public school educated journalist. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and as we know, you can get away with an awful lot of stuff if you're a public school educated journalist who may, exactly. may or may, may not have wanted to build a garden bridge at some point. Um, <laughs> so, but it's interesting. It, so in that sense, it's interesting to have that. And then, then before this is before the press conference unfolds in the narrative. So you're told, you're given that little bit of information. Watch this carefully. This is a mass. This is a masterful performance that you're about to see um so yeah i think there's there's yeah there's re there's room for playing with form and format isn't there mm. yes. well uh we have managed to record our watching brief on a day when uh we won't go into specifics but andy is feeling rather tired today 
I'm still feeling quite washed out and a bit, a little bit poorly from having had a, a week long uh, virus. Um, I think we, I think we deserve to pat ourselves on the back. I think well done, well, well done us. Uh, and hopefully, folks at home, you've you, you've enjoyed this as well. Any comments? Please do comment below. Any suggestions for uh, media or news stories you want us to cover in the coming weeks? Uh, please do get in touch. And I guess all that remains to say is look after one another, really. We, we as we just alluded to, we don't know what's happening in the US yet. Um, we know we're about to go into a very difficult time here, in particular in England um, and in different parts of the UK, having different rules at different times with regards to this pandemic. Um, be kind, I suppose I would say. Be kind. And if you're not feeling too good, talk to somebody else, please. There's, yes. plenty, there's lots of help out there not just in your friends and family but elsewhere so yeah take it easy and um, see you next month yeah definitely uh, can I just add just, just quickly on that note when we were preparing the agenda for this this month watching brief it became clear that I just needed to have a chat so basically yeah just talk to people if you need yeah right bye see you next month <laughs> bye This podcast episode has been produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network in collaboration with Archaeosuit Productions. Find out more podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.